Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. Oh, layoff. The following program <laughs> is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Soon to be a major motion picture star, Yulia Baskin. Produced by Rex Dale. I'm making this up as I go. Oh, you sure are. <laughs> Keep going. Howard Lapidus, manager to the star. Co-host, fact checker, Mark Boyer. Hello. Program True Crime Uncensored. And you know, sometimes it pays to be a Schwarza. Oh, you know what? What? With our guest today. Yeah. How do you, why do you go there? Big, well, I'll explain that to you. Ron Chepsick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, bro. Hello. Now, the reason I made the, the comment that I would just receive so much uh, slapping in the face for is that sometimes it pays to be a Schwarzen. And that is, the reason I'm saying this. Okay, go ahead. Is that we're going to talk today about Frank Matthews from part of the show. Frank Matthews is one of the biggest gangsters in the history of America. And one of the reasons he didn't get brought down earlier was that people assumed that no black guy could have a crime organization this huge. Am I correct, Ron? Yes, yes. Yeah, that is true. See, I'm not as dumb as I look. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one's that dumb. That, that, that's, that's part of it, too. You have to give the guy some credit, too, of but, course. And we'll talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the black or white, I think we get into right. this guy's life. It didn't matter yeah. what color he was. He knew how to operate. Yeah, yeah. But when they, the, exactly the police had, a, had him up early, and the superiors just discounted any of the material because the guy was black. Why don't we set this up a little yeah, bit? Yeah, let's Ron, Ron, give us the backstory on this guy and then, uh, where he comes from, and then I want to jump in okay, on that. Uh, okay, in a nutshell, uh, Frank Matthews, that's with two T's, uh, was born February 13th, 1944, in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And uh, he was, uh, you know, typical rural southern kid. He got into some trouble when he was in his teen. He was poor, but he was ambitious. And uh, Durham, you know, was called the Harlem of the South, which gives you some indication of what kind of city it was for blacks, you know, it was the center of music, and, and it, was, it, was, it was called the, Wall, the Black Wall Street of the South. And so he grew up in this environment, and uh, like most people want to be ambitious on the, uh, on the good side of the law, <laughs> he wanted to be a gangster. Well, this, is, this, so it this is the question I had, because Mark and I were talking on the way up to the show today. You're talking about uh, uh, the city in North Carolina. I mean, if you were going to be black, that was the place to be. I mean, you had black-owned businesses, yeah. you have a high level of education, college graduates. Yeah. I mean, this guy could have been, you know... Uh, well, one of the great uh, industrial leaders of society. Well, well you know, you've seen like our documentary. <laughs> right, you've seen our documentary, right. and uh, you know what the what the law enforcement guys said. They said he could have ran if he if he he, he could have bought he could have ran a McDonald's, and if he had one McDonald's, he would have wanted twenty of them. Yeah, that's the type of guy that this this was, and that environment. Uh, you know, uh, bred uh, this this ambitious young young black guy back in the '60s when uh, you know he shouldn't have been ambitious uh, either either side of the, of the law, either as a criminal or as um, as a um, legitimate person. You know, in those days the, the crime was run by the uh, La Cosa Nostra, and uh, they controlled the uh, the drug trade. And uh, you know, he left Durham. Uh, it's not clear uh, when, but I think he was about 17 or 18 years old, and uh, went to Philadelphia for a while, um, got in a little trouble, nothing serious, 
uh, he entered the the, uh, the policy um, racket, you know, which was big in the black community. What, what is the policy racket? Well, you know, the numbers. Oh, you know, numbers there was, yeah. yeah, just numbers and the numbers racket. And so he was a runner for the numbers game, and uh, he was a barber on the side. And uh, then he moved to uh, New York uh, for uh, reasons I haven't been able to det- determine yet. Uh, and uh, ended up in New York and uh, was doing the same thing. And uh, he saw the opportunity. He saw the you know the the, the burgeoning um, drug trade, heroin, soldiers coming back from Vietnam, and uh, the potential for, uh, you know, wouldn't for you, drugs. Wouldn't you say that he ran to New York following the drugs? And maybe that's the reason. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think so. I think he just. I, it, there was some some. Um, um, uh, controversy of surrounding why he left Philadelphia. Some people say he was run out of town. He got into some trouble, uh, but they don't really know why. You know, they never really explain why. Uh, I don't think. I think he was looking for opportunity. Period. And uh, he did find it in the numbers. He was making really, really good money in the numbers. Uh, for what I was told, uh, but he he wanted he wanted more. You know, he wanted to be. Uh, you know, big in in uh, in crime, and uh, he saw the drug trade as being that opportunity. Of course, he had a big roadblock, the Cosa Nostra, in in those days. And in order to enter the trade, this was back in the back in the uh, '60s before the French Connection broke up. Uh, you needed really uh, the permission of the Cosa Nostra. And uh, according to one of the stories I heard, he went uh, for a meeting, and uh, for whatever reason, they turned him down. And that's when he began to look for another outlet, uh, which would give him the opportunity. Yeah, he wasn't going to be stopped, basically, is what it comes down to. No, no. I mean, and if you look at his uh, his, his criminal career, this is the way the t- type of guy was. But didn't we have I mean, racism uh, in La Costa Nostra? Seriously. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they were... Uh, there was a lot of uh, you know racism, but the way the, I mean, way the it's, 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 don't trust the Moulin Yeah, I mean that, then that's, that's what right. That well, is. He, right. I mean the blacks were the, uh, the you know the handmaidens of the, of the drug trade. You know they did the dirty work on the street. Uh, uh, you know selling the drugs, and uh, they couldn't really rise any higher. You know they couldn't be, couldn't be a drug kingpin like Matthews and some of these others like like Nicky Barnes or Frank Lucas uh, became later. On that, then, so they, you know, he was stymied. But uh, you know, most most um, uh, black uh, blacks wanting to enter the drug game would have gave up. But uh, Matthews wasn't that type of person. It really showed his personality because uh, he, uh, you know, eventually found a way out of the uh, out of the out of the uh, dilemma of not being able to enter the drug trade. But he just go around these guys, didn't he? Well, yeah. He uh, fortunately, you know, he he became friends with a uh, with a numbers king who was who was the biggest numbers king in Harlem. Um, and he was Puerto Rican, and he introduced him to a Cuban named Rolando Gonzalez, who was a big drug dealer in in, um, in uh, New York at that time. And uh, Gonzalez got in trouble with the law, and he he jumped bond uh, and fled to to Caracas, Venezuela. And uh, according to what uh, I've told and what I've, I've read, uh, he uh, gave uh, Matthews his first a kilo of cocaine, sold it for twenty thousand dollars. And said he was going to Venezuela, where remnants of the French Connection were establishing themselves in Caracas. And he said that he would have really good contacts there, and that once he got established, uh, he was interested. They, they could maybe work out a deal, work out a you know pipeline from the right. United States coming in through Caracas. So that's how he got. That's how he got started, which sort of end run the uh, La Cosa Nostra. I'm surprised the Costa Nostra didn't try to put some heavy squeeze on him there. Well, if you've seen the documentary, right. it, it was it was a, a you know a very tense relationship uh, for as long as Matthews 
uh, you know, it was around New York City. I mean, you know. In fact, I want to mention to people when we say the documentary, what we're talking right. about. There's a DVD out that is absolutely incredible. It's about an hour and 40 minutes called The Frank Matthews Story, The Rise and Disappearance of America's Biggest Kingpin. And uh, it is a great Great DVD, and we're just really excited to have you on the show. So we got that, and we'll mention that some more, but uh, keep going. Right, right, on that then. So, um, uh, you know, he uh, was able to uh, establish this uh, this pipeline. And, of course, uh, you know, law enforcement in those days really, you know, they're always behind the radar. You know, when, when they start off investigating, the bad guys are always ahead, and it takes a little while for the good guys to catch up in, in their investigation. But they didn't know this guy was on the, on the radar until two years after he uh, got established, and by that time, he was in 21 states across the United States, which was uh, unheard of because most of the time, uh, these uh, the drug dealers were operating in their neighborhoods. You know, they're essentially neighborhood operations, and if you're in New York, you probably never ventured outside of New York. You did all your right. dealing. But here you had Matthews essentially establishing McDonald's. He was franchising uh, drug operations in uh, cities all along the East Coast, and uh, as we as we uh, uh, mentioned as the prosecutor that uh, eventually went after Matthew said if, if he never got stopped he could have ruled the world he could have been one of the you know maybe the biggest uh, without question an international kingpin of uh, un- unparalleled stature amazing we, we had freeway Ricky Ross on the show a couple years ago oh you did yeah a great guy very fun to talk to yeah <laughs> and you know he was doing millions millions and he, yeah. he had stuff going all over the United States he didn't have it franchised out quite to the degree business sense that right. Frank did but the money was rolling in so much they didn't have time to count it all that's well you know in in the documentary we talk about that where Matthews would leave forty thousand dollars in a trunk and uh, somebody would remind him that the money was there. And, uh, you know, he'd say, well, if you're worried about it, you keep it, uh, <laughs> MF, you know, mother. Yeah, you can say you know, yeah. You keep it. And, that, and, that, and we have a, uh, several examples in the documentary of, of guys that worked with him back in the 70s that, uh, you know, talked about uh, the character. What's really amazing about Matthews is, you know, uh, you talk about some of these guys like uh, Barnes, Nicky Barnes, Frank Matthews. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of people dislike them. You know, they're, they're, you know, they, they just don't like everybody we talked to. We, nobody had a bad thing to say about this guy. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I mean, even the good guys, you know, had this grudging respect for him. They, you know, they like to catch him, and we can talk about that later. Uh, but I mean, they like to catch him. Uh, but you know, they still had this admiration. Respect. Yeah. yeah, right. Our, our admiration for him, and um, and uh, that's why I got really good cooperation with law enforcement because they really curious to find out what happened. That's an interesting point that you bring up, because I ran into the same thing when uh, one of the first true crime books I ever did was uh, uh, about a guy in the the Secret Service loved him. I mean, they were trying to catch him, but they admired him and respected him. That's right. That's right. That's right. And and Frank Matthews, you know, he was uh, he was bigger than life. Uh, you know, and and uh, sometimes I have to actually actually stop because the character he reminds me of is Kaiser Sose. Yeah, in unusual <laughs> suspect. You don't know if the guy's real or not. And yeah. because you know, <laughs> I never. You know, the thing that amazes me, and I'm still, I'm I'm doing a book now, which of course, as you know, bro, it takes a lot more work oh, than yeah, a documentary. Yeah. 
So I'm doing research, and uh, I found some woman that knew. I can't imagine. I can't believe how many women this guy had. Well, I'm I sure. mean, he had. It makes Lou Allison he had do look like an amateur. Hundreds of women. I, I don't know how he had time to do a drug empire, <laughs> and still have time, <laughs> you know, to, to hang out in the bedroom. I know it's like to have one around. Mark C.G. Boyer, I believe, has a question. Mark, do you have a question for Rod? Yeah. Well, you know, if you have an opportunity to stop, you're going to find time to do it. Yeah, well, that's um, I, from my research, I um, you might want to try seemed, that sometime. High <laughs> management, right? No, he seemed to uh, he seemed to be very generous uh, yes. with those around him. You want a car? Pick a car. That's right. That's right. And uh, oh, it's like that, the... he was smart in that respect because you know if you're generous with people around you, that 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 breeds loyalty. Well, they hold your back. That's for sure. I mean, that's right. You and, don't want to kill the cash cow. No. That, that's right, but you know, people. You know, people are loyal to you. And one of the unusual thing about this is because I interviewed all the major, um, uh, and I'm still interviewing uh, uh, them, uh, the, the, the investigators that were trying to tra- track down Matthews to find what happened to him. They, they never had any informants. You know, the, not one informant. I mean, which is quite amazing in this yeah. world of the snitch, eh? The well, yeah, snitch you, you, you've got uh, guys who are head of crime families who are wearing wires nowadays. That's right. That's right. And and the, and, and you know, that's one of the major ways well, you know to to uh, catch somebody is through. And they, and they yeah, never had any like reliable I'm, evidence from informers what happened to Matthews. We got fear going here, but the uh-huh. the the what what attracted you to this story, Ron? Well, uh, I was. Um, uh, I just finished my my first crime book called uh, the Cali uh, uh, Drug Lords: uh, The Rise and Fall of the Cali Cartel, and the biggest crime uh, organization in history, out of Cali. And uh, I was looking around for I was really uh, uh, enthralled with writing true crime, and so I was looking around for another project. And uh, yeah, I got a what do you do for a living? <laughs> well, at that time, I was a university. I'm a full time uh, writer, uh, a documentary uh, producer now. But at that time, I was a university professor. And uh, I was able to justify these research projects as part of my research as a faculty member. So I, right. I was pretty, I was quite lucky in that because some of them took you know a lot of time. But I was I was hang, I was uh, looking for my next project, and uh, uh, I ran, I, I was uh, watching some old black black exploitation movies from the seventies. You remember them? Yeah, uh, black Super Godfather, Fly, Black Caesar, right? Uh, yeah. Shaft, yeah. and I loved them. I loved them. And uh, I why, decided, why, you know, why why do you love them? I mean, they're not the greatest uh, Shaft. No, they're, well, they're, well, they're, they're exciting. Interesting. I love the dialogue. Cleopatra I love the characters. Jones. You know, I love the, I love the clothes. You know, I love the ambience for the period. I just Got I just it. I just like watching them. I mean, you're enjoyable. You're right. I mean, you know, they're not uh, you know not great art, but uh, they're 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 fast to me at least. They're fast. Great slice of culture, pop culture. Right, right. So and well, uh, you know, most of those uh, books were like set in Harlem, and I said, God, I said Harlem must be a really interesting place to. Uh, uh, you know, for crime, and I, I wanted to get a book on it, and I couldn't find a book on. So uh, you wrote it. On, <laughs> yeah, I wrote it, Gangsters of Harlem, and I traced you know the history of of, uh, of uh, crime in Harlem on that. And then one of the uh, uh, characters I stumbled on was uh, Frank Matthews, and uh, I did a chapter on, on Frank Matthews, and you know, pretty well uh, outlined his life and all that. And I said, there, there's got to be more to this. And this project took me like five years before I finally got it off the ground. I had a couple of people I was working with that were doing documentaries, it never worked out. And um, I was, uh, uh, you know, sidetracked by other projects. But finally, last fall, L. Bradley, he's the uh, co producer, co director on the documentary with me, uh, talked me into uh, going ahead and doing it. He says, because uh, so many of the, uh, at least five key sources died 
in the last two years. Well, that's what that's I was going to say. I mean, you got interviews with guys that had, I was thinking they must have just got out of the slammer recently. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, like uh, uh, Matthews would be 68. So most of the, the people that he's dealing with are, are in that age and higher, you know. And uh, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, these guys live fast and uh and heavy i mean uh when i went down to durham to to try to locate some of the, some of the homeboys that were uh uh the new matches and all that you know i'd find them on respirators <laughs> on on walkers and uh, much older than their age you know like they're late uh you know they're only in their late 60s and you know they're like 80 85 i mean and so uh i realized i said you know like if i wait much longer it's just, they're gonna uh, be gone know, yeah oh, yeah they're gonna be gone you know and and uh that, that, that you know you know yourself bro uh, when you're doing a, a book Court records are invaluable, right? Oh, yeah, uh, right. And there are no court records for Matthews. I mean, there are absolutely nothing. They, Did they get? They, were uh, they purposely destroyed? Because this is no, leading no. to something I wanted to talk about. But go ahead. No, he never. He never. Um, he never went to trial for uh, for anything. Just that that uh, the minor case. So you have to um, look for like cor- corollary uh, cases. Right. Right. Well, what happened was what happened was eighteen of his associates were indicted about fifteen or sixteen months after he disappeared. And I said, great, because there was 40 witnesses in there. And I knew there was a lot of, you know, really good background stuff that you can't uh, reconstruct through interviews because of the time uh, lapse, right? So I went looking for them. I went to the National Art. The records, they can't find the records. (laughs) What a surprise. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know what happened. I've seen, actually, the sentencing documents on people disappear so they don't get out of prison. That's right. (laughs) Where's, right. Yeah, where, you're right. Where, where's Frank Matthews? Duh. <laughs> See, that, that's, that's the, the, there's the question. Is he, you know, it, the interesting part that I don't think we've gotten to yet is that when he took off in 1973, he packed about 15 to 20 million dollars in his pocket, which in today's money is like massive. Uh, it wasn't so, too small then either. No, no, about ninety million. They estimated about ninety million. So, so turn, guy turn. takes off. And, I mean, did he? Did, you know, did he go to Venezuela and hang out with those guys and, and just wow. live the life? And that that be the end of it? Well, I mean that that is the that is the mystery. That's the ninety million dollar uh, question. Well, <laughs> right, because you see everything about Matthew. I mean, it's like Kaiser Sosa. You don't know if, uh, what's true and what's not true. Like for example. Um, uh, I was told by uh, Gerald Miller, who was the key guy, head of the investigation, that uh, they had evidence that Matthews was putting away about a million dollars a month, about 15 to 20 months before he disappeared. And that's how they came up with this figure, this 15 to 20 million, right? Where was when you say putting it away? Where would that well, go? Well, in money, you know, he was, he was putting it somewhere. And in those days, there were... Oh, yeah, it wasn't going into the, uh, the bank no, account. No, well... Well, uh, they don't know for sure because in those days they didn't have the money laundering laws like they had today. You know, there was you know, there was uh, hardly any any kind of uh, no. But, uh, but but the government monitored those uh, you know major deposits for tax purposes. No, no, no. No, they didn't do that. No, I mean, uh, really. Well, let me get my uh, my late father on the phone. He, he'd like to know <laughs> no. that that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, like uh, uh, I, I did a book on uh, Sergeant Smack on Not Ike Atkinson. And, uh, you know, he had his lawyer bringing money out to the Cayman Islands. And if the lawyer never snitched, uh, they never would have got that money. I mean, no, there, there was none of that electronic stuff they have today and all that. And, uh, and I asked, you know, I've asked everybody. Nobody knows what happened to the money, you know, what, what happened to it. And so when he disappeared, um, you know, he just, he just um, um, Evaporated. Uh, vanished. Uh, and the last place they know, this is what the prosecutor t- told me, uh, is that, uh, the, the, he was in a plane that landed in Texas, in, in, the, outside of Houston. 
and that's the last uh, place that they know uh, him to be, or they, they suspect him to be. Even that's not uh, clear. Well, you know, as I, I once posed the question to Andrew D. Donato, who has uh, had some people yes. trying to kill him, I said, who's five foot three, has really long blonde hair and large breasts? He said, who? I said, you if you got a brain in your head. <laughs> so, I mean, he could look like anything. We're going to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with Ron Chepsik on True Crime Uncensored. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored. Yeah, and? <laughs> Are we done or are you going to play some more? With Burl Bear <laughs> and Howard Lapidus. And what about what's his name over here? Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. And the woman with the hooters. And sometimes <laughs> Marie. Emeke Esquire. Oh, uh, hello. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. Who's the leggy blonde? Who in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. Okay, you got that squared away. Jeez. Welcome We're not back. here yet. True Crime Uncensored. I'm Burl Bear Howard. Mark, Ron Chepsik's on with us. Uh, the brand new documentary. It's a DVD that I strongly recommend. The Frank Matthews story, Rise and Disappearance of America's Biggest Kingpin. Absolutely fascinating. Where is that available? It is available. Well, yeah, the best place, uh, if you want instant digital download, you can have it uh, right after you listen to the show. You can go to our website at frankmatthewsstory.com, www.frankmatthewsstory.com, and you can also buy it there. You can buy the physical copy. You could buy it uh, at uh, through Amazon, and uh, several outlets, too, are, are carrying it. But the best place is to go to our website, and you'll have it uh, either instantly with digital download, or you can have the physical copy in three or four days. And this is no sloppy production, folks. I mean, this is we're talking first class here on this. Very impressed. Thank you. Very impressed Thank with you, the quality bro. on this thing. Right. Uh, okay. Where were? Oh, I was going to say when he when he takes off, this Frank Matthews guy disappears with fifteen to twenty million dollars. He had something or a bunch of it stashed in a safe deposit box. He goes well, to the bank, right? Well, see, they don't. That's another thing they don't know. What they do know is, well, one of the people we interviewed was an IRS agent that was assigned to the case, and Ron Taylor, and uh, he tells a story in the documentary where. Uh, he got word that after Matthews had fled New York, uh, this was like within the within the same day that he was down in uh, in Durham and he was at a bank on Main Street, and uh, so uh, he went rushed down there, and he rushed to the bank and uh, he asked somebody when he came in one of the officials at the bank he said, "Is there a Frank Matthews here?" And the guy said, "Oh, he just went out." I said, "What was he doing?" He said, "He was uh, yeah, uh, going through his uh, safety deposit box." And he rushed out to the back, and he looked, and he saw the car leave. He didn't see Matthews, but he saw this car, which he assumed was Matthews. And that's uh, supposedly the last sighting uh, anybody ever saw of him, for sure. I mean, that they, that they could document. Yeah, he now lives as Salman Rushdie. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he was uh, reported, you know, in 50 states. 
I mean, uh, they had a they had a special task force. They had these Centax, which were uh, these special investigative units that went after the biggest of the big. And he was number two. And they assigned initially fifteen agents to try to get uh, Frank Matthews, and they were very confident they were going to get him right. After all, you know, they always get their man. Oh yeah. And, uh, and they were working around the clock. And around the clock, and uh, it went on for a couple of years until they turned it over to the marshals, and the marshals took over. But uh, yeah, I love the department store too. Hey, but, but, right. but, but Ron, you know, you're one of the you know, handful of people that have really researched this guy outside of the authorities. I mean, really, really researched him. And this guy had, you know, an ego. Uh, he had this lust for power That's and right. and profit. Right. And to just vanish it. How old was he? He was 20, uh, 20, he was 1944, 73, so that's what, 29. He wasn't even 30 okay, yet. guy wasn't even 30 years old yet, in the absolute prime of his testosteronic right. right okay? <laughs> this guy, this guy decides to disappear. Or, that's right. Or, I mean, is he capable of absolute disappearance? You know, I mean, off the planet. Reinventing himself as James that's Woods. The, that, that's the question I debate every day. When I'm researching this guy, is how can he do this given his personality, given the way he lived, you know, given his uh, his uh, penchant for for crowds, for people. He loved yeah. he loved crowds. He, he went through uh, all the big fights. Quarry, yeah, Quarry, so Ali. He's one know, of those Fraser. guys. We've seen this guy time and time again. We know kind of get the makeup yeah. of this guy. Uh, you know, he's a narcissist. Uh, you know, of the first yeah. order and, you know, and a a killer. Um, is he a killer? Yeah. Well, uh, there's no. Uh, 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 well, yeah, there are a couple instances where I was told stories, but they weren't they weren't verified. Where he but had come on off the, off the record, it's just us kids, right? I mean, this guy right. was a killer, and and uh, that's how he maintained and and was able to keep his power. He uh, he hurt people uh, to, to the nth degree, and now he disappears. Now he just coincidentally. Uh, in in a kind of a battle with uh, the uh, Bonanno family and uh, the Gambinos. Mm-hmm. Now, was he murdered? I mean, how does a guy disappear? Well, I, well I, you're I'm, right. I mean, I mean, how can this guy? I mean, he would have to be the smartest guy, the most disciplined guy uh, of which all he time. Appears I mean, to all be. gangster uh, of all time. Uh, because yes, eventually, yes. eventually, they make, you know they make a mistake or doing something. Sure, but you can disappear. Uh, you know, you, you can disappear for like 16 years, whatever it was, 16 years for Whitey Bozier. Yeah, well, uh, the, I want to get ter- to that, yeah. Right, the, the, there was a terrorist in um, uh, that hijacked a plane uh, a couple months ago uh, that uh, was even longer than Frank Matthews. But and, hang, hang and on they a found them. They found them in Portugal. Ron, 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 if you, you'd use the Whitey Bulger comparison, Whitey at that point when he disappeared was 60 years old and changed. Uh, you know, he pretty much lived it. Yeah, but the point I wanted to, Howard, if I could interrupt for a second, Ron, the point I wanted to get about Whitey is that they didn't want to catch him right away. He knew too much about the corruption of the FBI back home. They wanted him to sit out there for a while to let things cool off. Well, my point, I was going there, too. It, it, you know, he was not going to get caught. He just going to relax in Santa Monica until they felt like catching him. But this guy here, how do you talk about discipline, Burrow? 
this guy would have to have more discipline than I've ever seen in a human to be able to put put down his narcissist number, you know, take it from 18 to 3, and, and just totally, totally not care anymore at the age of 29. Or he could have complete well, plastic well, surgery, a melanin reassignment operation, and he could be, uh, you know, one of the uh, Mentalin brothers. Well, well, well unofficially, unofficially that's true. But there are there are dozens of people that claim that they're they're in contact with Frank Matthews or they met Frank Matthews. I mean, unverifiable stories I heard. Uh, like for example, uh, I heard one 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 uh, police officer in Philadelphia told me that one of the uh, one of his informants that that uh, from the, from the seventies that knew Matthews told him that uh, he was at a party and uh, he got a little rough with his girl and he heard this voice. Behind him, it just brought chills down his throat. Now, Matthews, he was a macho guy, but he had a high pitched voice, you know, like Flip Wilson. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. very, very, you know, of course you never laughed at this guy because he was tough for oh. hell. But, but I mean, it was a distinctive voice, you know what I mean? A very distinctive voice. And this guy, you know, he turned around and he didn't recognize the guy, but he recognized the voice. And that was Matthews. And there are all kinds of stories. There's a story in Durham uh, told, and these people are nuts. I mean, these people are very, they look at you like they're telling you a story that's, that, that can be, uh, you know, refuted. Uh, one guy told, uh, I was told by two or three people in Durham that he showed up a couple years ago for a funeral dressed as a woman. And then somebody said, nah, nah, Frank would never dress up as a woman. On that, and somebody said, "Yes, he would, because he has a, he had a great sense of humor. You know, he would show up at this thing dressed as a woman." And uh, I was uh, there's another guy um, that I'm, I was trying to interview, and I'm still trying to interview him, but he doesn't he doesn't um, he's been um, uh, hesitant to talk to me. But uh, to a third party, uh, all of a sudden, this guy uh, this guy said um, uh, that he wanted to uh, to talk to me. And uh, the guy asked him, what, what, why, "What made you change your mind?" He said, "Oh, Frank uh, Frank had called me." <laughs> and uh, and the guy said he his did. ego, yeah, he watched it. Yeah. Well, well, he said he did, and I and, he, and I and so I asked the guy. I said, where, where, "Where was Frank supposed to be in Chicago?" And so he said that uh, that this guy told him that I wanted to interview him. And Frank said, uh, "Well, it's about time that somebody did my biography, you know, and got it right." And you know, there's stories like this, all kinds of stories like this. So well, you're liable to you know, get you're officially, liable to of officially he disappeared. Frank. Right, officially he disappeared. Officially, he disappeared. Now, unofficially, there are all these stories floating around, you know, in, in the background. What's the statute of limitations on him? Well, for, for what crime? Uh, that, you know, yeah. That's a good question. Well, uh, what's the crime, bro? Yeah, that's that's what I'm asking. Well, it, uh, a drug conspiracy. There's no murder charges against him. Well, what, after seven years, isn't he home free? No, no. He's there's still there's still. Uh, well, he jumped he jumped uh, bond too. So he's got the bond. My own feelings is that uh, my own feeling is that if he uh, came back today with a good lawyer, I think he could beat everything except the um, the uh, jumping bond, and he'd probably get t- t- two years. But it'd be like Woody Bozier, where the uh, uh, law would would be very embarrassed by him. Mm-hmm. The fact that he, you know he showed up after forty years, and they would try to you know bury this case because the longer it hung around, you know the more embarrassing, more embarrassing it, it is, for them, yeah. right for them. Now, we haven't even talked about Cheryl Brown, right? No, let's talk about that. <laughs> Cheryl Brown, you know, another mystery, and a couple of the people have approached me, uh, you know, about the documentary um, and saying, that, you know, that uh, they were related somehow. To, this was through email, and, uh, you know, they... Uh, Explain who uh, she is. Docu- Pardon? Explain who she is. Well, Cheryl Brown was, was a young girl. Uh, she was uh, either from Queens or Brooklyn. 
And uh, Frank Matthews met her in a nightclub. She was about 23. And uh, as uh, Charles Clinton describes her in the documentary, she had a Halle Berry, you know, quality about her. She was very, very pretty and all this. And, uh, and she was, like, from the right side of the tracks. Her, her parents were school teachers. She was middle class, uh, black. And, but there was this attraction. And uh, Frank, you know, at the time, you know, uh, had a common-law wife, Barbara Hinton, and three children. But that didn't stop him. He had girls in every, every city. But they, they hit it off. And now uh, uh, she disappeared at the time that Frank disappeared. And the assumption is that she left with Frank. But again, the, you know, Frank Matthews' story, there's nothing, there's no evidence that that, that, really, that actually happened. It's a good assumption, but whether it's true or not, you know, it's unproven. And, uh, and uh, she has completely disappeared like Frank. Uh, the uh, marshals put a trace on her parents' house for like five years. There wasn't a call. And she was supposed to be very, very, very close to her parents. And, and uh, the marshals told me that they concluded their parents didn't know anything about her. You know, they were devastated by her uh, disappearance, but they, they didn't have any knowledge of the case. Now, you know, a young girl, 23 years old, and uh, very close to her parents, never calls them in five years. You know what I mean? I mean, well, uh, uh, you know, under the categories, I'm going to go dead. But who would want her dead? Well, uh, we could get into that because, uh, uh, you know, he had 15 to $20 million with him. Okay, and so he was he was on he was on the run, and uh, we we know he got to we know he got to Texas uh, according, according to the prosecutors. Now he had contacts in Venezuela, and you remember in, in the documentary we talked about the CIA, right? Mm -hmm. The CIA got involved because Frank was dealing with some real real uh, nasty characters, Corsicans that were uh, you know uh, involved with Nazi Germany, uh, you know during the Second World War in France and all that. And uh, but they were you know good guys because they had information to fight communism. So the CIA cut off the <laughs> the allegiances the just driving me crazy. Huh? The allegiances, the way the allegiances change. Yeah. You got these Nazis running smack, cooperating with the CIA because we're fighting the communists. That's right. <laughs> and what they did was they cut off they cut off the um, the um, Venezuelan part of the Frank Matthews uh, investigation. And the way Frank got indicted was that they busted eight to ten um, uh, gangsters in Venezuela. Uh, most of them Corsicans are involved with this drug ring that Frank uh, dealt with. Now, the really interesting thing, uh, and so this led to the indictment, because one of them, a guy, a guy named uh, Marcello Cabot, uh, his, his real name was Garcia, thinked uh, on... Um, on Frank, you know, and that—that's where they got the, you know, the, the smoking gun against Frank. So, uh, but what happened was, two years later, I learned that they dropped all charges against those guys. Isn't that weird? Well, they, uh, they probably were told to drop all the charges. Well, well, that's right. I mean, so none of them got. So here you have Frank out here in the cold, and I think you know, there's just you know, it's uh, there could be a possibility that he was whacked because maybe he knew too much. Yeah, but if he was whacked, he wouldn't be calling people saying, "Go ahead and talk to us." About the time someone's in my biography. Well, now that's all. That's all rumor. You know, maybe yeah. these guys are are BSing me. Maybe they're telling it too. We don't know. That's what I'm saying. No, they got no, no. vested interest in, in BSing you that Frank <laughs> called them though. See, I got to look at it from that standpoint. Who well, I don't it? know. Who is I don't, it? You know, you know, maybe maybe they uh, see angels too. I don't know. Maybe they're nuts. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Ron, who is it besides you know guys like you that did the documentary? Who's now really out there looking for this guy? Well, that's <laughs> you know what I'll tell you. I'll tell you who's looking for him. 
really, and the law enforcement will get furious when I say this. Nobody. <laughs> I'll tell you why. That's because, what it smells uh, like to me, and that's that's what that's, that's why the question. Go okay, ahead. Well, let, let me explain why. Please. Because, why, why I know they're not doing anything. Okay. Because Barbara Hinton, uh, his common law wife I mentioned, uh, went to Cincinnati. And um, uh, everybody I talked to uh, over the last five years uh, uh, talked like she was alive. And I called up uh, the, the grandson of Frank Matthews, contacted me. And, uh, and so I started I'm, uh, a conversation with him. And uh, I sent him a copy of the DVD to the family. And I said, well, how did Frank Jr., because Frank Matthews' son, like it? He said, all right. And then I said, did you like it? He said, all right. And I said, well, what about Barbara? He said, Barbara, didn't you know? I said, what do you mean? She died in 2003. So they don't know nothing. They haven't been following this investigation at all. So he's scot-free unless he makes a mistake, if he's still alive, that is. Well, it's only 68. What's Junior doing? What does he do for a living? I mean, he wasn't well, that well, old in McDonald's. Well, you know, what's really, what's really interesting is, if you remember the documentary, uh, uh, we, had, we talked to the tutor, right? Mm. And the tutor was saying that the kids were well-behaved and all that. And after, um, <laughs> after uh, uh, Frank disappeared... Uh, uh, the, the kids, you know, they just fell apart. They got into all kinds of trouble. One of them, one of the sons, in jail now. Uh, the other couple have been in jail too. So uh, that's another reason why, he, whether he's alive or not, because uh, Frank was a good father, and then uh, he disappeared like that, leaving his kids, you know, without a father. And uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to him yet. I'm hoping to arrange an interview with them to find a little bit more about, uh, you know, the family background if they'll talk to me. And there's a tremendous amount of loyalty to Frank. It's, it's hard for people to talk because they think, yeah, I'm trying to find him. I said, <laughs> if 15 agents uh, in 76 couldn't find him, you know, what makes you think that whatever I do... You know, you know, you know how you'll find him is he will find you. You know, because no one expects him to. It's like, when, it's like when they didn't expect Howard Hughes to make that phone call saying, I wish I was still in the movie business. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do get some calls in the middle of the night where uh, I go, hello, 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 and then click. <laughs> yeah. And you I wonder, who, you know, through, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. You wonder who's on the other end. Hey, when yeah. you write true crime, you've got to be prepared for that. <laughs> it's Burl, that's right. That's Burl Bear calling you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. It's the heavy that's breathing. Okay. Yeah, that tips you off. He, he does you, then he gets to me about 10 minutes later. It's just not a pretty <laughs> right. thing. I have, right. a, I have uh, I have his call, his phone number blocked. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Mike. You're the one that should keep it open. Because <laughs> yeah. you like the heavy breathing. There you go. <laughs> now, so, uh, hey, hey, Ron, where, Ron, where did you faculty when you were a faculty person? Uh, I went to University in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina. I'm a Canadian by birth. And, oh, yeah, where, uh, whereabouts? Where are you from? In, in Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay, Thunder Thunder Bay, Bay Ontario, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Ontario. Well, I know uh, it well. In the tundra. You and, Paul, you, you and Paul Schaefer, you know that? Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. Paul Schaefer's from uh, my hometown. Yes, he is. See? Yeah, right. My brother went to school with him. Is my that brother right? was, uh, Yeah, my brother went to school with him. Yeah, he's, he's one of the proud uh, achievements of uh, Thunder Bay. But I ended up down in, um, in the South, and, um, and I was a faculty member. And then, um, uh, you know, that's where, I, that's where I started writing freelance. Not, not writing scholarly tunes, but freelance. I started when, off that when did you leave? When did you leave Canada? I left Canada when I was uh, when I was uh, nineteen, okay. and uh, I went to, I went to school, and I came back for one year, and um, uh, spent the rest of my time in the United States. Uh, in '88, I uh, went to Columbia and um, I missed my plane and met my future wife. Okay, hey, heck of a deal! We got to take a sixty-second break. We'll be right back with Ron Chepsick and the Frank Matthews story, gangsters of Harlem, Motown Mafia, Murder City, all coming up after the sixty-second break.
If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Hi, I'm the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, and write true crime. We've had some great guests on the show, such as Kathleen Ramsland and Amanda Lamb, both crime hotties. Well, imagine Burl Bear between the covers with Amanda Lamb and Kathleen Ramsland, and you'll just have a peek into the brand new book, Masters of True Crime. Like alarm clock. Yeah, 17 true crime writers all in one book called Masters of True Crime. Hey, I'm one of them. I'm a master of my own domain and a master of true crime. Get the book now from Prometheus Books and you'll be so excited you'll say, wow. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I bet Catherine Ramsland and Amanda Lamb are really thrilled with that spot. I just did. Oh, the two of them are just home going... <laughs> wow. Why didn't we write this with Howard Lapidus? <laughs> a Burl sandwich. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is a good book, I would say. Even though I'm in it, it's a good book. 99 cents, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, no. That's, uh, oh, that's the cheap... Oh, that's the other one. That's the short stories by Burl. Yeah, yeah, that's the short... Yeah, Nobody's the perfect, yeah, yeah. Short stories. Speaking of being able to buy something almost instantaneously, Ron, how do we get a hold of the documentary? One more time. Uh, the, the best way to go is to frankmatthewsmovie.com, www.frankmatthewsmovie.com, and that's the website, the official website for the documentary. And you can instantly digitally download right after the show, kick you about one minute, and uh, if you want the physical copy, you can get it there too. You can go to Amazon um, uh, and, and purchase it, and uh, or else you can you know go at uh, some outlets in some of the major cities carry DVDs. Uh, we'll be carrying our documentary as well. But well as, as a person that so, so, as a person that sometimes does that, produces uh, the odd uh, documentary. Uh, uh, I highly recommend this. It, it was a fascinating hour and 23 minutes or whatever it is. Uh, just it, it flies by. It flies by. And it tells the story of this guy, uh, Frank Matthews, who we're talking about today. That, that, and it causes so many questions for me. That's why it was just going to be a ball to ha- have you on the show today. Well, well the, uh, we're, we're, we're planning to do uh, uh, number two, uh, the sequel. You know, at the end of the, you remember, there was a uh, part two coming. Right. Because uh, uh, the story is so rich and so big, we just barely touched the. Well, well, one of the things, you know, you mentioned the CIA and them telling them to back off. Uh, I had uh, wound up through a strange set of circumstances getting all the original FBI files that belonged to an FBI agent. 
One of the biggest drug busts in American history was a marijuana bust, actually, in Detroit. A huge amount. And they had the, the, the FBI had been smuggling drugs to find out who the other drug smugglers were. Oh, is that similar to selling giving cards to the Mexicans? Right. And, yeah, I was just thinking of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, so they, they go to Buster, and they have the name of the guy at the top, the very top. And they're going to go after him. And the CIA comes to the FBI. This is right there in the report. and says, no, you can't touch this guy. They say, why not? He's Well, he's... He's a contractor, very highly connected with the White House. Uh, there's pictures of him with the president. Uh, the guy's untouchable. You can't go there. And, you know, and when we look at the Whitey Bulger thing, where they let him sit out there because they didn't want him embarrassing the FBI. And we had Georgia Durante, uh, you know, author of the company she keeps right. in the Players Guide to Play on. <laughs> and and, and uh, she said that when she wrote her book, she wasn't afraid of reprisals from the mob. She was afraid of reprisals from the feds because right. she was delivering money to the feds. They were laundering the mob's money. So, I mean, it's so incestuous. But don't you think that, uh, you know, the government officials that do things like that, Burl, are doing that to hook in the cr- criminals? They're not criminals. Nah, I think they're lining their pockets. Do you think so? Well, remember we had Jerry Estes on. She was talking about how in just in the tenderloin she had uh, the vice cops in her pocket. She had the judges in the pockets. She had the cops in her pocket. Yeah, low-level stuff. Yeah, well, it's the same. Uh, macrocosm, microcosm, it's the same principle. You think supply. so? So, you, so I, I'm to look at like a guy like J. Edgar Hoover and not respect his homosexuality? I never respect Respected him because he was a loved Hitler. I don't. I don't think he looked good in the dress. Personally. No. What do you think, Ron? Uh, yeah, he definitely didn't look good in the dress. He no, I mean the other stuff. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, so this, this is what happens about three-quarters of the way through the show. Well, you know, uh, uh, you're, you're talking... You're, you're t- I'll tell you my Hoover story if you're interested. Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I went to a predominantly black school in the, uh, in the 70s. I, went, I got a master's degree from Atlanta University, and uh, I was a grad, uh, assistant to one of the professors. Um, and uh, I remember the day Hoover died. They were literally cheering on campus. I mean, they hated that guy because of his campaign against uh, Martin Luther King. Sure, and I, I I was really I was shocked by just the you know the absolute uh, hate of uh, of uh, Hoover, and uh, I found out later that he was like the most reviled you know white guy ever in in uh, American history with uh, for black community. Well, have you ever seen the love letters that he was writing to Goebbels and Hitler and those guys? I mean, it's just horrifying, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, right. He, he was a big supporter of Hitler until we went to war with him. <laughs> then right. he had to then change had, his then, mind. Then he had to politically switch yeah, right. teams. So, yeah, but, you know, the FBI didn't have anything to do with Matthews, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, they, it was strictly, mar- uh, you know, marshals and uh, and DEA and uh, and NYPD and cops, you know, around the, uh, the very... Now, why wasn't the FBI ever involved in this? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't say, know. But... I think, first of all, he was African-American uh, and was looked upon probably as not a... Uh, uh, those days, they were looking at uh, at the five families as running things, really running things, and right. this guy's kind of a street thug. Right. So, so uh, you know, that was my guess on that, and it's strictly a guess, but, you know, we're talking a guy that was looked upon, and that's how he was able to, because he's smart, smart as a tack, you know, let him... You know, he was happy to be looked upon as a street thug, I think. Right. And and then just get away with nothing but murder and money. That's right. That's right. He, he was he was very good at keeping under the radar. And and you know the way the documentary describes it, uh, it was just pure luck. While they stumbled on this guy, oh, that's uh, a great story. By a weird coincidence, uh, a cop from the NYPD was living in the same apartment building as Matthews on Clarkson Avenue in in Brooklyn, and he saw all these. Uh, 
uh, guys coming in, superfly guy looking guys, you know, with big cars, just carrying it. He got really suspicious, of course, and he started his own investigation. And it took him like uh, almost uh, uh, eighteen months. And then he, then he presented it to the NYPD, and they were shocked. I mean, that this was going on because he had he did a search on him, he used the databases, and he found out how big this guy was, and nobody knew about it. That's uh, even though even though American Gangster was almost entirely fiction. That there's a parallel where Russell Crowe has done this investigation and mm-hmm. presents the information on, on how uh, how big of a criminal this guy is, and all the uh, all the superiors right. look at him and go, "You're out of your mind. Go right. away." Right, right. Well, that's the way it was with uh, with Frank Matthews, and then um, once they decided to once they started to investigate how he was operating, uh, you know, and how much money he was making, uh, then it got really serious because they realized that this guy was, you know, Mister Big. So maybe they set him up, the uh, government had him killed, and the, the government agents that had him killed uh, took off with the dough. Well, I mean, any theory, given the, the lack of, of, uh, of facts surrounding his, um, his whereabouts, uh, what happened to him, I mean, any, any theory really is uh, <laughs> as good as but the, I, the I'm theory. A, any theory is a guess. I'm having a tough really, time. Just given what, what you've presented for me in the documentary and then here today, I'm having a tough time. Again, I'm backing up about a half hour, but I, I, it's hard for me to see a guy at age 29 who is just flying. I'll tell you what he did, Howard. This is what Burl Bear thinks. Burl Bear thinks he did have plastic surgery, no longer looks African-American, looks Hispanic, and became one of the drug lords in uh, South and Central America. Well, well you remember, uh, uh, we mentioned Frank Bender. You remember the, fa- the famous forensic uh, sculptor? Mm-hmm. They even brought him on the case, and he did a, a, a sculpt, uh, a bust of uh, Frank Matthews, what he would look like. Of course, it wasn't plastic surgery. It would be what he looked like if he was um, uh, still around today. You know, as an years American. Old, yeah. Right, right on that. But yeah, I mean, uh, you remember the marshal in the documentary? I, I pinned him down, you know, because I was doing the interviews, and you know, I said, you know, what evidence do you, you know? And he, and, and the truth was, he spent ten years on the case, and he didn't have anything, which was just unbelievably mind-boggling to me, and very frustrating to him. You can see the frustration on the screen because they never had a. Sol- he said, he, "This is his own words." They never had a solid lead. In ten years. Yeah, I mean, and you know, they had, uh, you know, they were they were working full time on this case because this guy, you know, uh, working full time with nothing but bubkas. <laughs> Let me ask That's you right. this: Has any major network uh, done any kind of uh, short form piece on this this guy? No. Like, look at Dateline. No, and, and when I was uh, researching this before, I was cringing because I thought American Gangster would. Uh, would do something, you know, that series on, on, on black entertainment television, I thought maybe gangland. And nobody has done... He's, he's been kind of lucky in a way. He sort of, he sort of dropped in under the radar for some reason. I don't know why, the, you know, he hasn't gotten more attention because, because, you know, the story, as you saw, the documentary, is just fascinating. And it's so rich, you know, and so different. I mean, there's so many different... And he was, a, he was, a, he was the Al Capone. Of, uh, of black gangsters. You know, yeah, I want to go thing. back to a second, back here for a second. When uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, you know, originally got life in prison, right? And then, because the Freeway Ricky Ross task force was more corrupt than Freeway Ricky Ross, <laughs> those guys wind up. The cops wind up going to the slammer, whatever. <laughs> they cut Ricky down to twenty five years, and then they finally let him out. Now, uh, the first time he was supposed to be on the show, they wouldn't let him come because he'd been seen on uh, the Internet chatting 
you know, on a conversation with another convi- uh, convicted felon. He's not supposed to associate right. with convicted right. felons. So, but he came on the show here and he says, listen, if I'm not supposed to associate with other convicted felons, I live in the hood. Says, Who else am I going to associate with? <laughs> <laughs> Just come take me away right now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, if uh, Frank's listening in the show, I would advise him to Hi, come Frank. in. Yeah, I, I would advise him to come in, you know, because I think he could, he could beat and, and you know, beat every charge, and I think he might, you know, with a good lawyer, the only thing he's going to have to worry about is jumping bond. But I think that the, he could probably work out a deal because there'd be so much interest, you know, w- you know, with him. And you know, Cheryl Brown, they never wanted her. All she, all she was um, uh, wanted for was, was a material arrest warrant. You know, she was a potential witness. And uh, I, when I was talking to the marshals, I was in their office. I said, please let me have a picture of her. I want to see what she is, and could I have a copy, you know, for the for the document? And uh, they said we have to check to see if there's anything outstanding against her. So they went and checked, and they said no, there's nothing outstanding against her. We can't give you the picture. And so uh, you know, she walks in off the off the uh, uh, off the street into a, the marshal's office. And says, "Here I am." They say, "Great, go home." Yeah. I mean, you know, there's nothing. So that's another reason, uh, as you were saying, you know, that uh, uh, you know that's good possibility he could be dead. Well, um, from from another perspective of uh, going through the material, you have an individual that we're speculating uh, is a type A personality and needs to mm-hmm. be in the spotlight. But mm-hmm. everything that he did uh, at uh, uh, prior to the his empire crumbling was recognize the writing on the wall and do everything he could to dis- to make sure that his escape was clean. Mm-hmm. That says to me, uh, I have the discipline to set that up months, a year and a half in advance. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go and recivitate. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what, you know, unless unless he gets to the point wherever he is where he feels comfortable and goes back, right. he's going to disappear because he set it up to disappear. Right. And you make well, the uh, you make the analogy with the uh, with the Kaiser Sose. Uh, did you ever uh, interview Kevin Spacey? I'm sorry. No. <laughs> no. Um, the same kind of thing applies though through the whole thread. It's the poof he'll be gone uh mentality. Once he eliminates the witness to who he is, he right. has no further need to be in crime. He can go back and take his money and sit back and rest and enjoy the rest right. of his life. Kind of like Gabe right. Kaplan. <laughs> right. Well, you know, uh, uh, well, you're talking even, even the discipline. Car, we're talking about you being disciplined and all this, and and you know being flamboyant. I mean, he there's strong evidence, uh, which is disputed by people that knew him, that he had a cocaine habit too. And uh, you remember in the documentary, uh, he had a a, a, a a regular heartbeat. That's what the, the the prosecutor said, which I've never been able to to verify. And then, you know, that really strange story where he was supposed to have shown up in Houston for a heart transplant. And uh, a woman, uh, one of his girlfriends, uh, insisted that he was, he was in Houston. And Houston, of course, is a, is a major medical center. And the marshals were checking everything out. So they sent, like, uh, you know, their agents down there to check it out and never checked out on that. But, again, this is part of the incredible mystery of this guy. I mean, everything, every side, every side that you point out has another side. You've, and you've got Which an, is you, just, you, as, just as logical and, and, could be, and it's just as convincing as the other side, whether Ron, he's alive or dead. Ron, you've got enough for another one. You can do another hour and a half. Well, we, yeah, right. We, 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 we've got several sort of new sources that uh, you know, we, we want to bring into this and, and explore this. Uh, and this was uh, done with uh, your buddy Al Prophet. 
Right. Al, that's his, that's his uh, uh, stage name. Yeah. Uh, his real name is Alan Bradley. You're right. And he wanted to be on the show, but he, he, he was uh, in production. Next uh, time, maybe. Nate, yeah. hey, by the way, if you ever make it to the West Coast, come join us live. What a, a lot of fun you were today. Thank you well, very much. Thank you. A great show here. I enjoy your show. It's a great show. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks. Well, our pleasure. Thanks. We'll have you back again. Ron Chipsick and uh, Frank Matthews' story. It's frankmatthewsmovie.com. You can download it. It's the download. You can have it in a minute. His other works in his, uh, in his production company. Yeah, lots of good stuff. In his uh, publishing company. Now, next week, we got uh, something really unusual. I don't have her name in front of me. She's up in uh, Bellingham, Washington. She's not a crime hottie? She's a hottie, all right. And she has a site on solving unsolved crimes. She gives you all the information, all the background stuff, and then you get to try to work it out. Cold cases. Uh, cold cases is fascinating. It's going to be fun. Yes, it'll it be will. Fun. I promise. Speaking of fun, what could be more entertaining than Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence live from the Lighten Up Lounge? Well, you probably have your own list, and we all do. But until then, we'll just enjoy Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence live from the Lighten Up Lounge. Fun.